well, a rictal lagus cuniculus of the order Lepromorphia in the class of mammalia is a reddish, brown, grayish creature. It's grayish brown with a little reddish streak sometimes in its fur. It has um, gray and beige rings around its eyes. It has a bushy tail and long pointed black tipped ears. It is commonly known as the European rabbit. And the European rabbit is indigenous to only one area on planet Earth. Guess where that is? Europe. But its highest concentration these days is in Australia. That's not in Europe. Not Austria, Australia. By far the highest concentration of European rabbits is in Australia. And this is all because of Austin Thomas who himself was an import from Europe to Australia in 1859. Uh, he settled a ranch there in Australia, and he wanted some, some rabbits to shoot for sport. And so he imported 24 rabbits and let them run in his property, and he would go and hunt them down for fun. Uh, two problems. One, he wasn't as good a shot as he thought he was and didn't get all of them. And two, rabbits tend to breed like, well, like rabbits, yeah. And so they started to multiply and multiply. And because they're not indigenous to Australia, they started to take over the plant species and chase out other mammal species. And within 10 years, these 24 European rabbits had multiplied so much that they were killing two million of them every year without putting a dent in the population. I mean, rabbits, when they breed, they have a gestation period of one month. They tend to produce litters with as many as three to eight young, six times a year. And so after a decade, they're killing two million of these, and no one can even notice the dent they're putting in their population. And it caused such trouble that it drove out to extinction, eight other mammal species and countless plant species as a direct result of these 24 little decimating rabbits. In the same way, God's people are called to drive out all of their sin, but sometimes people want to keep one or two little pet sins hidden. They want to keep them to themselves. They think it's not going to cause problems. But the problem with sins is sins breed. They spread like rabbits. And this is what we're going to see in our study this evening. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel. Judges chapter 1. The judges, if you weren't here for our introductory sermon, just remember, don't picture somebody in a black robe with a gavel. The judges were freedom fighters. They were more like military leaders. Uh, they were not political. They were not spiritual leaders. These are not, you know, paragons of virtue, models for us to pattern ourselves after by any stretch of the imagination. These were the right men at the right time for the right job, even though they did it in the wrong way most often. Uh, this is a, a book about what happens when there is no king in Israel. When no one is in charge, then everything goes... And then everything goes to pot, basically. And this is what we're going to learn. Everything goes wrong when there's no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That is the mantra of the book that appears a few times through the book. It's the last verse of the book that kind of sums it up. 
This is what happens when there's no king in Israel. This is what happens when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. So that's why this is the perfect book for we who live in a postmodern society. And all you need to know about postmodernism, it kind of uh, emerged out of Einstein's general theory of relativity and uh, the idea of relativism and how mathematically people realize that the answer isn't always absolute, but it depends where you are. Somebody asked me, to, how are those related? I mentioned them last sermon. You know, just mathematically, Einstein proved that if, if a person is running at a certain speed, you can do calculations on their speed and the distance that they tr- travel. But if he was doing that on a train that was also traveling, that would change things. And uh, the answers would be different. How fast is that person going? Well, it depends. Uh, relative to the train, he's going a certain speed, but relative to the person on the platform, that person is going at a different speed, right? And so that's what relativity kind of proved and introduced mathematically to the world. And what that led to in to poetry and art and literature is the concept that there are no absolute truths. It's all relative to where you stand and view what's happening. So yes, it might be wrong to kill, but it, it would be right to kill in certain situations, Um, And it might be wrong to commit adultery, but, you know, if you were in a concentration camp and you had to save people's lives, then in that case, it might be okay to commit adultery or whatever it is. And so people started realizing, well, if morals are relative and there's no absolute truth, basically that boils down to each person does what's right in their own eyes. Welcome to the 21st century, right? I mean, that's where we're living today. Uh, it, It comes out in concepts Uh, that we saw like um, desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, The end justifies the means. What two people do in the privacy of their own bedroom is their business. And God has no say over that because it's relative to what they want to do. If a person is born with a certain gender, but they change their mind and feel like according to them, relative to them, that's the wrong gender, well then we, we can't say anything about that because God's word has no place in that person's life. So that's how relativity and relativism seeped into our society. But it's not modern. It's not even postmodern. It's pre-postmodern. It's found clearly in the book of Judges. This is what will happen when people don't know what God says is true. What God says is right. And everyone's just trying their best to do what they think is right. And what we'll see as a theme that comes through the book of Judges is that these people really do think what they're doing is right. They're not trying to do evil all the time. They sometimes think. That's why you have Jephthah, we'll meet him, sacrificing his daughter because he thinks that's the right thing to do because of the situation they were in. That's why you see uh, a man... Get his own Levite. That's why you see a man send his daughters out to be raped to protect his guests because he thinks that's what God would want him to do, to protect his guests. So people really have no clue what God wants because they're not in his word. And so this book becomes an apologetic for why God needed to raise up a leader. He would raise up David who would bring God's word again. So that's where we find ourselves in the days that the judges ruled Israel. What we learn from this book, and the reason it's so relative to us in the desperate times that we live in, is it reminds us how to avoid chaotic degradation of society. It helps us understand the dangers of gender abuse, as we shall see, and moral decay. 
And the way we do that is we need someone to tell us what God says about these things, and then we need to obey that. So let me read for you uh, just the opening bit here of Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, just pause there for a moment. I know we had a whole sermon just on that phrase last week, but there's one thing I forgot to mention to you, that the sections tend to start with phrases like that, after the death of Abraham, after the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua. So this is marking a new chapter in Israel's history. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, and just pause, when you talk about Judah and Simeon here, you know, his brother, these are metonyms for the whole tribe. So it's the tribe of Judah speaking to the tribe of Simeon through their leaders. But it sounds like it's brothers talking. But remember, those brothers have died, you know, 400 years ago. 477 years ago. Um, So Judah said in verse 3 to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So just stop right there for now. Okay. What's happening here is that the tribes are doing exactly what they were meant to do. They had allotted portions of the land, and Judah says, I need help driving out the Canaanites and killing them. And remember, your option was always leave our land and never come back, convert to worship Yahweh and join our people, or die. Those are your options. And, uh, but we need help. So your tribe comes and helps my tribe, then my tribe's going to help your tribe, and they were working together, and they went up against the Canaanites, and God gave them that victory, and they killed 10,000 of them, and Adoni Bezek is just, he's the leader, um, the, the king of Bezek, and they chop off his thumbs and his toes, because obviously that was something that he used to do to people. I think the idea between chopping off someone's thumbs and toes is that they, they can no longer fight, you know, they can't use a sword, they can't use a bow and arrow, they can't ride a horse, they can't run. Um, so it's kind of like a, a way of maiming your, the king that you have brought in as your slave. And he says, hey, I've done this to 70 people. Like, I've, I've done this to countless other kings, and they were, they were getting the scraps under my table. I, I had them as slaves in my house, so it's only fair that God has done this to me. And he just uses the generic term Elohim, that, you know, the gods have done this to me. So he even recognizes, yeah, yeah, this is a just punishment. And then he dies um, I, from, I don't know, blood loss, or they kill him or whatever. And at this point, you might be thinking, this is kind of making my stomach a little squeamish. Uh, let me just warn you, it gets worse. So if you're feeling squeamish about thumbs and toes being cut off, 
then the book of Judges is not for you, okay? This is just, we're just dipping our toe into what's coming, right? It's going to get way more violent than this. But that's the point, okay, is that, that they're doing what they were meant to do. And this success of what happened here at Bezek is meant to be how the rest of the book reads. Now, this tribe helps that tribe, and they cast out the bad guys. Then this tribe helps that tribe, and they go, and they kill off all the bad guys. And eventually, there's no more bad guys. And if you want to know something, you go to the high priest, and you ask Yahweh. And using the short straw and the long straw in his breastplate, he will tell you what Yahweh wants, and, and we do this. Using the mechanisms that God had put in place through Moses. Moses. Use the Levites. Use the, the priests. Use the high priest. Go to the tabernacle. Stay right with Yahweh, and everything will be fine. And we see this happen for the last time in a little narrative from a particularly old and faithful man, the last living remnant of the Egyptian generation. And his name is who? He's the last living remnant of those that came out of Egypt. Caleb. Yeah, Caleb. So look at verse 12. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. And she came to him, to Caleb, and urged it, well, uh, to her husband, um, and urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from a donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you've set me in the land of the Negev, which is the desert in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, uh, Moses, well, we'll get to verse 16. Okay, so she gets the upper springs, she gets the lower springs, it's kind of a wedding gift. Um, Othniel is the first judge, we're going to learn a little bit more about him. But for now, this is what happens. So, Othniel is a man of great faith, and apparently military um, ability as well. He's the kind of caliber that Caleb wants his daughter to marry. Now, this doesn't seem very PC to us today, that the dad just kind of decides, hey, go get that land, and whoever gets that land, I'll give you, I know, my daughter. And we think, that's just treating her like property, and what about women's rights? You have to resign yourself to the fact that in those days, marriages were arranged. That's just, that's how it happened. And the way Caleb decides to arrange this marriage is not just, you know, who's the best-looking guy around or who's the richest, but who is somebody who has great faith. Because this is, this is the little interesting fact that you might not have picked up just reading that. Caleb doesn't own that land. Their Canaanites be there. And so whoever goes to get that land has to go and wipe out the Canaanites. So they need to have a military mind, they need to be powerful, they need to be brave, they need to have loyal followers and soldiers who will go with them, they need to have the equipment for that, they need to be willing to risk their lives, and most importantly, they need to be the type of people that believe in God's promise. And this is the way it should work. This is the promised land. God said, any land you want, walk on it and it's yours. And so Caleb's saying, I want to try this out with the new generation and say, if you want to marry my daughter, I want the kind of guy that's going to say, Sure, I want to marry Caleb's daughter. Um, who wouldn't? I'll just go and drive out the Canaanites, knowing that, well, that's possible. 
because God promised us this land. So, so far in the book of Judges, so good. Everybody's doing what they're meant to do. Here, Caleb implements this, this method to ensure that his future son-in-law is a man of faith and bravery, bravery and property. And so then she says, okay, this is very sweet that you got me this area, but it doesn't have water. <laughs> it's in the Negev. The Negev means south. It's the desert area. So, yes, we've got this giant cattle ranch and no water to feed the cattle. So go ask dad for some land. Um, and he says, sure, I will, honey. Show you where the donkey is so that you can ask your dad for the land because that's what happens. She says, you go do it, and then she ends up doing it, you know. I mean, C Caleb's a pretty intimidating guy, and I know you just gave me all this property and your daughter, dad, can I have some more, uh, you know. So she hops off and says, Come on, Daddy, you know, bats her little eyes. Give us some more land as well. This time give us something with some water in it. And he's like, no problem, honey. You can have the, you can have the upper springs. You can have a he's just looking at the map and just deciding what he wants to give her and gives it to her, even though that's not his land because it's promised to whoever goes to get it. So this is just a wonderful snapshot of what life should have been like in the promised land. Just enjoy it for a moment. Because it's about to evaporate. Turn to verse 16. <laughs> and the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And here we have the introduction of the first little wabbit of compromise. Remember who Moses' father-in-law was? Who remembers his name? Jethro. Jethro, very good. Jethro was what nationality? He was a Midianite, that's right. Moses went into the wilderness for 40 years after he killed the Egyptian, and he went into Midian and was a shepherd there in Midian for 40 years, and he, met, you know, he saves the daughter, uh, Jethro's daughters from the guys at the well, and so he falls in love with her, Zipporah, and they get married. And so he marries a Midianite. And her dad is the priest of the Midianites, the pagan priest. But he later converts and he joins Israel. Um, but his descendants, the Kenite, the descendants of the Kenite, um, Moses' father-in-law, they're, they're, not, they're not Jews. They're kind of like half in, half out, but they're close enough. I mean, they're not Jews, they're not in the Jewish line, but they're from the line of somebody that one of the Jews married's father, so it's kind of close enough. So we're just going to let them in and let them settle there. And it's, it's one of those sort of borderline, I mean, Zipporah was part of the Jewish people, and her dad kind of looks like he converts and the descendants, sure, let's let them in. But here we have, and we're finally at the point where we get our, our outline, two parents of compromise so that we will rid our lives of sin. Two parents of compromise. Excuses and exceptions. These are the first two wabbits that we find. You know, the mommy wabbit, excuses, and the daddy wabbit, exceptions. Sorry, Bugs Bunny and Elma Fudd is in my mind for some reason. Verse 17. Let's look at excuses, the first parents of compromise. You see this here, verse 17. 
And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabit Zephyr and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Horma. Uh, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. We'll learn later those are Philistine cities. And Yahweh was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive... Now listen here. He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now... Here we have the first clear-cut case. So the descendants of Jethro, uh, we're not quite sure what to do with them. But here we have a clear-cut case. Simeon and Judah go, they drive out all of the Canaanites in the hill country. But when they get to the plains, there's a problem. They can't drive everyone out. And the reason they can't drive everybody out there is they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. That's their excuse. We can't obey God fully because of the chariots of iron. And in my Bible in the margin, I have written there, really? Really? After all that God's done for you, after all that you've seen, you're scared of the chariots. Now, granted, these are, these are the upgrades. These are the iron chariots. We're now heading into the early Iron Age. Um, Joshua, and that happened in the late Bronze Age. Now we're in the Iron Age. People are figuring out how to use iron. And, you know, bronze-plated chariots, they're soft. They're kind of easy to defeat. Wooden chariots are super easy to defeat, like the Egyptian types, because you just shoot them with flaming arrows and they catch a light. But iron chariots, oh, we don't know how to defeat those yet. And we were fine in the hills because you can't have a chariot in the hills. But when we get to the plains, now there's chariots and there's lots of lines of them and they've got these big war horses and they're coming at us. And so you know what we're going to do? We're just going to let those people stay there because they've got iron chariots. Now, iron chariots, as we said, are harder to defeat than wooden chariots, but not for God. They're not harder for God to defeat. So here you have the first time the Jews are in the promised land and they decide flat out to disobey God's command to drive out all of the Canaanites and they have an excuse. The scary chariots. Well, Psalm 20 verse 7 says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This was always the mantra of the people that, yes, you can put your faith in technology, you can put your faith in weapons, you can put your faith in wealth, you can put your faith in fortifications, but we will put our faith in Yahweh, and we're the ones that are going to rise up when you fall. And so the the Canaanites had nothing to trust in except their horses and chariots. The Israelites had Yahweh to trust in. And yet they found this This is an excuse to not obey him. And people use irrational excuses to avoid duties and obedience all the time. And this is why it's the first parent of compromise. And it's probably the first parent of compromise in your life. 
because when you make an exception to obey God, you're doing the same thing that, that these Judahites just did. Well, I know God says to do that, but in my case, there's an exception. Well, we'll get to exceptions. In my case, I, I have this reason. There's an excuse to not do it. You hear this all the time in counseling. Well, why are you doing that? Well, you know, because of this reason. But don't you know the Bible says not to do it? Yeah, I know, but... Well, as soon as you say, but, you know, the Bible says not to do it, but in my case... Well, well what, God's going to accept that excuse? There's always some excuse. My favorite excuse in the Bible is Proverbs twenty six thirteen. By far my favorite. The sluggard says... There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. That's why he's a sluggard. God wants you to go to work. He wants you to work hard. He wants you to provide for your family. Why aren't you doing it? Because, fill in the blank, some irrational fear. There's a lion in the street. There's no lion in the street. Otherwise, everyone would be home. How come you're the only one who's not working? Well, there's this lion in the street. There's this pandemic out there. There's crime. There's all sorts of reasons why I shouldn't do what God tells me to do. That's my excuse. And it's an irrational fear. It's an excuse to not do the right thing. People always have excuses. People have excuses to reject Christ. He, he mentions this in one of his parables. He, he says in Luke 14, 16, there was a man who gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make what? Excuses. And then Jesus lists some of these excuses that are just meant to be laughable. And none of these things are, are sinful. They're all fine, but they're getting in the way of Christ. They're just excuses for not wanting to do the right thing. One said, I bought a field. I, I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Yeah, like the field's not going to be there the day after the banquet? Nope, that's his excuse. Another said... Well, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I must go to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Okay, so that could be a legitimate reason. <laughs> you know, if it's like your wedding day or whatever. No, but that's not the point. The point is my wife doesn't want me to. I've got other responsibilities. And Jesus deliberately picks things here that there's nothing wrong with them, buying a field, buying oxen, um, getting married, it's like, well, I just, I bought my first piece of property, I bought a car, I just got married. These are good things that God gives us, but not when they get in the way of your invitation to salvation. And Jesus deliberately chooses in, in that parable in Luke 14, excuses that are irrational. There's nothing about that field that can't be checked out the next day. You just bought 12 yoke of oxen? Well, you've got them permanently. You can check them out tomorrow. This has been on... You've had to save the date. You knew that this was coming. Now that you're invited, suddenly you've got an excuse. And the, what Jesus is showing there is that people end up doing what they really want to do. And then they just come up with some excuse. Oh, I can't believe the Bible because, you know, the Jonah story's in there or whatever. I can't believe that a person could be swallowed by a fish for three days and survive. Like, Really? Is that really, really the one? If I could prove to you that that was possible, then you would convert? Of course not. That's just like the excuse that you picked. You don't think that a God that could create the universe in six days just by talking? Who could raise people from the dead? 
You don't think that person, that God who can do that, can just keep somebody alive in a fish for a while? Like, the, the, your excuses make no sense. Other people use um, excuses like, well, you can't prove God to me. You know, atheists always say, if you could prove God, I would, I would believe in God, the existence of God. But Paul tells us that's not an excuse. Remember Romans 1, verse 20? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has hardwired every human being with the ability to recognize that they have a creator. He builds design into our bodies so that we know we have a designer. Anyone who looks down into a microscope or up into a telescope knows that there is a very wise and powerful God who designed these things to work so perfectly together. The night sky is breathtaking. The animal kingdom is mystifying. The human body and its biology is stupefying. There's, there's really no excuse that you have to think, well, you can't prove to me that God exists. And in our world today, people still use excuses to justify their sin. This is what it sounds like. Uh, um, these are common excuses that come up. I, I know that the Bible says I need to worship Jesus, I need to go to church, I need to join a church, but I've had a bad experience with church. You hear this all the time. How come you start evangelizing someone and they say, I'm, I'm a Christian, don't worry, you don't have to evangelize me. Oh, what church do you go to? I don't go to church. Oh, don't you know the Bible says that all Christians have to go to church? Yes, but I had a bad experience, so I don't have to anymore. That's what they're saying. Yes, I know the Bible says that, but I have an excuse for not going. I have my little note that God gave me to just show whole monitors like you that I don't have to go. You have to go, and all the other Christians and all the other ages have to go, but not we who have been burnt by churches. We have our excuse. Or people say, um, oh, the reason I sin is because of my upbringing. You know, I, the reason I get drunk is my father was an alcoholic and my grandfather was an alcoholic, and... You know, we're all Irish, so there's that. You know, there's, that's my reason. I drink a lot because of my nationality. These are just excuses. But don't you know that God says, be drunk not with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, but in my case, I have this uh, upbringing issue. Or genes. You hear this all the time. Don't you know what God says about this lifestyle choice? Yes, but I was born that way. All you're saying is, I have an excuse. I know that's what God says, but I was born that way. Well, yeah, join the club. We were all born sinners. You, you think I can say, well, coveting's okay because I was born that way. I've been coveting ever since I stole my first toy from my first kindergartner. No, it's still wrong. Born that way. Everyone's born that way. That's our problem. That's why we need someone to make us born again. But if you want to do the right thing, you can do the right thing. This is a very important thing for, for you to grasp. There is never an excuse to sin. There's never an excuse to sin. I know some people teach something called like graded morality, um, graded ethics, where it's like, this is the right thing to do, but there's you know, the lesser of two evils, and if there's things that conflict, you always do the lesser of two. So God, it's okay for you to sin in this case because... You're, you know, whatever, saving a human life so you can sin. No, there's, there's no teaching like that in the Bible. 
The Bible says don't sin, ever, ever. In fact, this is what it does say. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. For those who think they have an excuse to sin in this particular situation, because I'm a single mom, because I have four jobs, because of this, because of that, therefore I can disobey God in this area and not go to church or not serve or not give or whatever it is. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has ever overtaken you. Well, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, there's nothing that's coming to you that hasn't come to mankind for centuries. You're not the only person ever to go through the difficulty you're going through. You're not. This is a common temptation. You know why? Because they're all common. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Then it goes on to say, God is faithful. It's another reason. Yes, you have the temptation, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's never a situation where you have to pick between two sins and so you pick the lesser one. There's always a way of escape. You can never ever say, my excuse that in my case, I can't do this obedience. Because then you're saying God lied. Because God says there's no temptation that isn't common to everybody else and... God says, I will never tempt you beyond what you're able. And you're saying, I tempted you beyond what you're able. God doesn't tempt us to evil anyway, right? He allows these trials into our lives to test our faith, to prove our faith, and to improve our faith. Never to cause us to stumble. God never does anything or allows anything in your life that will cause you to sin because he doesn't want you to sin. If it would definitely cause you to sin, he would prevent it from happening. So the fact that it happened means there must be a way for you to respond that in a way that gives him glory. That's what that verse means. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The way of escape. Think of Daniel. Man, if there's anyone in the Bible who ever had an excuse, his mom and dad get killed, he gets kidnapped. At age 15, he gets dragged to a foreign country, given a new name, he gets new clothes, he gets um, brainwashed into the Babylonian ways. He's got no family. He's got no synagogue. He's got no one looking after him. And he refuses to compromise one jot or tittle of his religion, even his diet. And then God looks after him and he gets promoted and he gets into a position. He won't compromise in the least detail of his prayer routine. That's not even commanded in Scripture. I pray three times a day, and I pray out my window. I pray publicly, and I pray aloud. And now there's a new law that says you're not allowed to pray except to the king. And so, you know what I would do? I would pray quietly. I pray real quietly in my room with the door closed and not tell anyone. And if anyone says, have you been praying to the king or have you been praying to that Yahweh God of yours? I would say, none of your business. That's what I would do. I plead the fifth. What would you do? He says, I'm not going to let the government rule even the tiniest detail of my routine that I set up for myself. And he just keeps praying publicly, even though it's going to cause him to be thrown in, in the lion's den. This, this is a guy with no rabbits in his life, right? Not even one little item of an excuse for compromise. Compare that to Christians today. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry I was cranky to you, but I was hungry. When I'm hungry, I get hangry. 
It's not an apology. What you're saying is, I'm sorry that you feel like my reason to sin isn't enough, but it is. I have an excuse. I was hungry. Yeah, I'm sorry I did that, but this and this. As soon as you follow I'm sorry with a but, you're saying, you're saying, well, I have an excuse for sinning. I got this, um, where did I put it, my I'm allowed to sin card. You don't have one of these? No, there are no excuses. So don't let excuses bring compromise into your life. The second parent of compromise, exceptions. The first one is excuses. The second one is exceptions. Look at verse 20. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from there three of the sons of Anak. They keep being mentioned because they're the giants, you know, that everyone was so afraid of. But the, ben- the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived there with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So by the time the book of Judges is being written, there's still Jebusites living in the capital city of the promised land. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and Yahweh was with him, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city. And we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites. And he built a city. And guess what he called it? Lutz. And it's, that's its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. And the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Why kill them when you can make them slaves? But did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, etc., etc., etc. Exception, exception, exception. Ex- yes, we're driving out. We're doing exactly what God said. Well, except for this, except for that. And it all starts with this one dude from the city of Luz. So they come in and they, they destroy the city. And they, well, they don't destroy it. They put it to the sword. So they wipe everyone out like they're supposed to. And they rename it Beth-El, which means the house of God, which they're supposed to. And so they take down all the street signs and everything that says that it's a lose. But how did they get in? They're trying to figure out how to get in. And there's a big gate or whatever. And they can't get in. And they see a, a guy coming along the way. And they pull him aside and say, listen, we're about to go and wipe out that whole town. So you can either be wiped out with them. Or you can help us get in, because we don't know how to get in. So the guy said, but we're going to get in eventually, so you might as well be the one to help us, and then we'll save you and your family. And they make a deal with him, and he's like, yeah, well, now I'm between a rock and a hard place. So he sells out his town for his own skin and that of his family, and he says, you know, there's a secret entrance that we have that's like emergency exit or whatever, blah, 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 this is how you do it. So they let him and his family go, and they go and they wipe out the town, and they just made one little exception. So God said to wipe out all of the Canaanites, and they did. They wiped out all of the Canaanites. Well, except for this, this one guy and his family. Little exception. But what did that guy do? Him and his family, they go a few clicks away. They start breeding like rabbits. A couple of generations later, they have another city. 
that's thriving in the promised land, just up the road from formerly known as Luz, Bethel, and guess what they named their new city? They're going to call it Luz. So everything that God told them to do didn't happen. It's just moved a little. Just moved down the road because they made one exception. And then the rest of the chapter just shows the kind of the slippery slope, the, the, the growing snowball of like, so the, these people let that one guy go, and then the next thing, this tribe lets those people go, and this tribe lets those people go, and this tribe lets those people go. And, and, and the point is, the people started disobeying God in mass, tribe after tribe after tribe, as if God didn't know the best way to run this country. When you get in the promised land, don't make them your slaves. You have to kill them or convert them. You can't have them be your slaves. They're going to cause trouble. And just in case you haven't read the Bible, they cause trouble. Chapter after chapter after chapter. Idols, Baals, Ashtaroth, all the pagan religions, the whole purpose of God wiping them out is because they've been worshipping Satan in all these different ways, and I don't want my people worshipping Satan, so make sure you drive them out of the land, and we say, we drove them all out. Except for that guy and his family, and the Jebusites, and, well, you know, we left her, and we left her, and they left her, and, they, and then, and just a couple of chapters later, you're going to see what happens. People doing what's right in their own eyes. You go a few books later, and you just see just, there's, there's idolatry everywhere, and God starts punishing his own people, and eventually kicks them out of the promised land for 70 years. Sin is contagious. Now, I just want to put in a little footnote for Rahab, because you might be thinking, but didn't they do that with Rahab? Rahab's a different situation. When Joshua and them came to attack Jericho, Rahab converted and joined the people of Israel. Now, that's always a legitimate choice for any of these pagans, is they can convert, renounce their gods. Rahab joins the people of Israel and actually ends up being the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. So she's legit. That's not what happened yet. This guy doesn't convert. This guy plants a church, uh, plants, you know, a city down the road from Luz and calls it Luz. Sin is contagious. That's why 1 Corinthians 5, as the ladies have been learning in the ladies' Bible study, Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. They were boasting that they'd forgiven this guy who was committing sexual immorality. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens what? the whole lump. You don't have to put yeast in every little part of the lump. You just put it in there and it spreads. Just like sin. You don't need a church full of sexually immoral people. You just need one. That everybody knows is sexually immoral and everybody's okay with it. There's nothing done. No one confronts them. There's no church discipline. Then the next person says, well, looks like it's going pretty well. He has his cake and he eats it. He gets Christianity. He gets to take communion. He gets to be in the church. And he gets to have this little thing on the side. I'm going to do that too. And next thing, you have a whole church. Why wouldn't you? Sin is contagious. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Like you take your dog in to be defleed. Have you ever done that? They comb all the fleas out. They spray the dog. They wash the dog. They comb all the fleas out. And they make sure they got every last flea. Now imagine they said, 
we're just going to put one flea back. The pregnant flea. What's going to happen? Six weeks later, you're going to have a dog filled with fleas again. You've got to get every last one. That's what sin is like, and that's what sin is like in your own life, too. You can't let it go. This is a lesson that we're going to see when we eventually get to 1 Samuel. Remember that? God says, wipe out all the Amalekites and, Saul, and, and kill all their animals. And Saul wipes out all the Amalekites, except one, King Agag. And kills all the animals, except the best, because why not sacrifice them to the Lord? And then Samuel shows up and says, why have you disobeyed God? I haven't disobeyed God. I did everything that he told me to. And then you hear, ah, oh, those little lambs? Yeah, we kept them to sacrifice to Yahweh. And Samuel says, did God want sacrifice or did he want obedience? Because of that, the kingdom is taken from Saul. That's 1 Samuel 15. Oh, and then Samuel shows Saul what he's supposed to do with the king Agag, and he chops off a lot more than his thumb, hacks him to pieces, wouldn't allow even one exception. This is why the Puritan Tom, uh, John Owen said, you must be mortifying your sin or it will mortify you. Mortify is an old word meaning to kill. You must be killing your sin or it will be killing you. You can't nestle a little sin like a little pet rabbit. So kill those rabbits. I just want you to think next time, whatever the sin is in your life that you're making a little exception for, that you're making an excuse for why it's okay, I want you to imagine what it would be like if Jesus said, I came to die for every single sin except that one. I have an excuse for not dying for that sin. Just that one that you're doing. Imagine you made an exception. You would go to hell. But he made no exception. He lived the perfect life and he never made exceptions. He never broke the law. He never sinned. So that he could offer all of that righteousness to us. And he paid for every single sin on the cross. No exceptions. No excuses. So that you could live for him in the same way. So kill those rabbits. Mortify those secret sins. Quit your excuses. Hack them into pieces. Have no exceptions. And you will experience the blessing of growth and godliness to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sobering reminder that compromise starts with little exceptions and excuses that we make. I pray, Father, that you would help us to spot them in our own lives, even this very week, that you would help us to see if there's any sin that we are hiding or that we have rid our lives of sin but have an exception for one or two that we're just keeping secret or we have excuses for while we think that it's okay for us to do. I pray that you'll expose those in our lives so that we can be faithful to you and, and rid our lives of, of all compromise so that we can obey and have the blessing that comes from that obedience. We thank you for dying for us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.